Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. Chinese philosophy has a long history stretching back more than 2,000 years and covers schools of thought such as Confucianism, Taoism, Legalism and Buddhism. Aspects of Chinese philosophy has had a deep influence on the cultural and political development of the nation and people of China. And joining me to discuss this tradition is Professor John Makem, Director of the China Studies Research Centre at La Trobe University. Thank you for joining me, John. Hi there, Matt. So can you give me a bit of a background? I know it's a, a big subject, but if you had to explain what Chinese philosophy is and how old is it and how is that age being defined? Right. Yeah, it is a big topic. Like all modern academic disciplines, whether they're we're talking in Europe or elsewhere, the notion of disciplinization was something that came into force in the 19th century. Mm. And territorial divisions started to be defined much more clearly. And one of those to come out of that was the notion of the academic discipline of, of philosophy. China bought into this in the late 19th century, but through the intermediary of Japan. China didn't have a term for philosophy at that stage, so it had to borrow a term from Japanese to translate the Western notion of philosophy. This is despite the fact that even though the Jesuits had been in China, operating in the Chinese language, and had used various attempts at translating the Western term philosophy and introducing it to a Chinese audience, it wasn't picked up. It wasn't on the radar of most Chinese intellectuals. So the idea that there's such a thing called philosophy was a very new idea in China 100 years ago. Mm. But it soon became something that was seen to be very important to have, as a number of very prominent Chinese intellectuals have repeated throughout the 20th century, any true civilization must have a philosophy. Therefore, China also must have a philosophy by definition, because China is a true civilization. And so there's been an attempt to recover from Chinese intellectual history, Chinese cultural history, those elements which can be redesigned and repackaged as philosophy. Sure, yeah. Now, that's one uh, filter in which we can, we can approach it. The other one is that we've got people grappling with ideas about what is the purpose of life, where do values come from, how do people interact with one another, how do we deal with the idea that there is all of this stuff around us, how do we explain it, what's the relationship between human beings and all this stuff around it. I think most people would treat these as philosophical questions. So these have been questions, of course, that Chinese and all peoples have been grappling with for thousands and thousands of years. They are, the Chinese are perhaps different from other cultures, not all cultures, certainly, but different in the sense that they have a recorded tradition of this stretching back several thousand years. Mm -hmm. So as a concept, then, it doesn't sound like it was a forced application to say, right, let's see what Chinese philosophy has, because there are Chinese ideas and schools of thought that do fit quite naturally into the concept of philosophy. Well, it certainly wasn't something that was imposed. It was a process of negotiation. Chinese intellectuals wanted to be able to identify in their own traditions, their own intellectual traditions, that which would fit neatly or relatively neatly under what in the West was accepted at the time as being philosophy. And so very early in the piece, one of the key things that the Chinese attempted to recover from their own early traditions was the notion of logic. Because at that time, particularly because of the way that the Japanese had introduced what philosophy was to the Chinese intellectuals, was it something that was defined by 
something that had to have system, something that had to have order, and the best example of that was logic. And so the Chinese, in their earliest attempts to come up with something that would satisfy what they were told was important in the Western tradition of philosophy, was to be able to identify logic within the early Chinese intellectual debates. Hmm. And so going back to you know roughly the time of, of Socrates and, and Plato, they were able to identify in the Chinese tradition about the same time the rudiments of logical debate. And so this was one of the first things that was latched on as being Chinese philosophy. And this also is one of the reasons that this very early period, what was happening in the five centuries BC, was defined as the classical period of Chinese philosophy. Yeah, yeah. Interesting that it's the same time and kind of a, a parallel yeah. evolution of the, of yeah, the this ideas is, this and schools is, of, of course, thought. Yeah. This period has also been known, there's a, a European scholar, Karl Jaspers, who's defined this period as, or described this period as the axial age, where things were happening also in India, of course, mm. uh, this attempt to deal with the transcendent. We'll get back to that in a minute because I do, I do want to circle back to that. But if you could uh, give me a bit of a, an introduction to the concepts and schools of thought of Chinese philosophy. So right. I named four in my intro there, but can you yeah. give me Schools the John of thought Macon? is something the Chinese had a very clear idea about, certainly from, let's say, about the time of Christ. So in the Han Dynasty, the Han Dynasty went from roughly 200 BC to 200 AD. So there was a very famous historian, uh, Sima Tan, in the second century BC, the latter part of the second century BC, was famous for having described six schools of, of Chinese thought and prominent amongst these, uh, ones that sort of later on still continued to be recognised was the Confucian tradition, the Taoist tradition and the Moist tradition, and I guess the legalists as well. Mm. But these traditions later on, uh, even today, are, are considered to be the representative schools of of traditional Chinese thought, even though not all of them prospered in later times. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, some are more prominent than others, some went in and out of favour. Yeah, the conventional wisdom is that Confucianism as a school of thought was able to form a very productive relationship with the state beginning in the Han Dynasty, Mm. and it continued to benefit from that relationship for the next couple of thousand years. Why was that the case? Why that one in particular? The conventional wisdom, and I say the conventional wisdom because some of this is being challenged or has been challenged by contemporary historians of, of the Han Dynasty, but the conventional wisdom and the one that's been accepted for the last 2,000 years is that this was very much to do with the way that officials were trained and the basis of the training was in the Confucian classics. So if you wanted to become an official, you had to be familiar with the classics and, and certain interpretations of those classics. And these classics, by definition, are Confucian. Mm-hmm. So you've got so, the people who are officials who are of the educated kind of class. Is yep. that the right word? Yep, yep, yep. Uh, having a grounding in Confucianism yep. and being aspired to. Yep. And this was very much true later on. And the notion of class, you, you had to be born into the sh class. This is a people who were entitled to receive an education to be able to undergo an education that would privilege you, entitle you to sit the exams and qualify or not qualify to become an official. So very much a class-based system. So is Confucianism always something that has been strongly associated with wisdom in China? It comes in and out of favour. Under the time of Mao, say, in the mid-20th century, there was a very different reception of Confucianism. Why is that the case? Well, it's really from the early part of the 20th century when there was a big backlash against tradition in the attempt to learn from the West, uh, to modernise China. 
1919, that's a particularly famous year in which there were demonstrations and there was a gathering, a momentum to import science, to import democracy, mm. um, to adopt Western learning. And Chinese tradition, and particularly things associated with Confucianism, were seen as, as holding back the ability, the capacity for China to become a modern nation. And so the view was formed that if China is to become a nation and a modern nation, because even the idea of China becoming a nation was on the agenda at that point, but becoming both a nation and a modern nation, we had to relegate the shackles of the past. And one of the biggest shackles was seen to be associated with Confucian values and Confucian legacy. And so Confucianism was often targeted throughout the 20th century as being a relic of the past that was an impediment to China's capacity to become a modern nation. This, of course, was exacerbated when the communists came to power in '49, and in the Cultural Revolution, Confucianism was particularly targeted, and even some of the Confucian uh, temples were ransacked and destroyed, and Confucius became a byword for the feudal past. Mm. So was it a rejection of what Confucianism embodied as a symbol of the past, or was it a rejection of the ideas as well? I think predominantly it was what Confucian represented as a symbol. Yeah. It was a symbol of the past. So the past was seen to be something that we had to remove, we had to get over, we should no longer let it shackle us if we were to move forward and become a modern nation. Mm. And this idea was very prominent uh, right through until, let's say, the 1970s. Yeah. So why is that different now then? I feel there has now been a complete reversal of this practice and Confucianism in particular is, is Well, embraced. when we talk about Confucianism in, in this context, of course, we're dealing much more than Confucianism as, as a philosophy. Mm. We're talking about it as a set of social codes, a set of values, a um, set of institutional arrangements, cultural associations. Much of this has been tied to, by the people who are wishing to bring back so-called Confucian values, tied to the idea of Chinese identity, the notion of Chinese culture having a core identity and that part of this core identity is associated with certain Confucian values, Confucian institutions. Confucian values such as? It depends who you ask. Mm. Uh, if it's at the official level, the state level, they will trot out a few verities such as harmony, humaneness. If you ask philosophers, they will read out a much larger list, one that's very much tied to discussions and debates and traditions, because within Confucianism, there are many traditions. Confucianism is not a monolithic tradition. Mm. It is a very broad church, and there are many traditions within Confucianism. So uh, there are many debates that have been going on for hundreds, in some cases, thousands of years within various of these Confucian traditions. And so philosophers who will talk about Confucian values will do so in the context of these debates. If we want to get into those, we need to choose which one we want to open up first. But at the official level where the state gets involved, it's really very much to serve a, a nationalist agenda, mm. uh, a cultural nationalist agenda, whereby tying in what is described as Confucian values with what is presented as Chinese identity and tying in the state as being a protector of our national identity, there's a somewhat of an unholy alliance of, of some of these um, elements from yeah. Confucianism and the state's rather more pragmatic agenda. So is this the reason why an association with Confucius that many people in Western countries will have will be Confucius Institutes, which are about teaching Chinese culture and 
Chinese language. Chinese language in Western contexts, in schools. Is it a borrowing of the good name? Even before there were any Confucius Institutes, I remember Chinese colleagues talking to me about floating the idea of calling them Confucius Institutes. You know, was this a good idea? And discussing the rationale for this particular name. And it was because Confucius has been known for a couple of thousand years as, as an exemplary teacher. Wan Shi Shibiao, the model teacher of 10,000 ages. So throughout the last couple of thousand years of Chinese history, Confucius is the exemplary teacher. And so as you have the Goethe Institute, the Chinese wanted to have something that represented the Chinese educational tradition, the Chinese tradition of learning. Mm. And so the reason they called them Confucius Institutes was that association. Yeah. And now also in modern China, you've got the situation where the leader of the country, Xi Jinping, has a, a close association that he would like to have with Confucius. He quotes Confucius quite a lot. He even has a book called How to Read the Chinese Classics. In particular, Confucius? or yeah, sub- Substantially, sub- Confucian works in that. So how does Xi Jinping identify with Confucius then? Uh, very superficially. Yeah. A few phrases here and there that he sprinkles his speeches with, but no engagement in any substantive way. Yeah. Very shallow. But it's good to be seen to have yeah. this association. Again, it's this idea, coming back to this idea of, in the Confucian tradition, that rulers not only are seen to be wise but they are wise. Yeah. And that the way they demonstrate this wisdom, because as I said before, this notion of, of a teacher is a model, and this is very much tied up with the notion of, of, of Chinese philosophy, that if you are a leader, you're also a teacher. As a teacher, you're a model. You have to set examples. In order to set examples, you have to show that you're learned and you're culturally sophisticated. And so for the last 20 years, there's been an attempt by senior party figures, by business people to attend classes, to get them up to speed with certain traditional texts so that they are able to be culturally literate to some extent in their own tradition. And does that actually help them having that qualification, that knowledge in their business I think so, because it provides a degree of cultural capital Mm. that they're able to use in, in conducting their other affairs. Yeah. So in the modern study then of philosophy, Uh, where do you see Chinese philosophy as having a contribution then in your field? I'm not saying justify what you're doing as a research. I'm just wondering uh, how the Chinese school of thought fits in at uh, all the big philosophy conventions. Well, next month I'm going to the 24th World Congress on Philosophy. And Mm. you know where it's going to be held? China. Peking University. Yeah. I think there's 4,000 papers. It's huge. Yeah. It's huge. But I think beyond that, we're now entering a period in which Chinese philosophy and a whole lot of other Chinese things, not just philosophy, there was a debate 20 years ago in which a lot of Chinese intellectuals were frustrated that the Western tradition didn't recognize Chinese philosophy as legitimate philosophy. And it was called the the legitimization of Chinese philosophy debate. Mm. And it went on for a number of years. And there was a concern uh, expressed by a large number of intellectuals that the terms by which philosophy was defined and undertaken was always taken from the Western tradition. So we have things like epistemology, ontology, big categories in philosophy, metaphysics. These we don't find in the Chinese tradition. Mm. Let's take something more specific, utilitarianism. We talk about John Stuart Mill as a utilitarian philosopher. Why don't we talk about Mordza? Why don't we describe Western philosophers in terms of Moism? 
Mm. Why do we have to always describe Chinese philosophers in, in terms of utilitarianism? So these these categories, who owns the categories by which philosophy is defined and, and undertaken? What we're going to see, I think, over the next hundred years is Chinese philosophers, Chinese intellectuals in other fields as well saying, we're no longer going to buy into those categories. We're going to work with our own categories. You don't like it? Fine. But they're going to do their own thing. Yeah. And as China gains increasing economic and political clout, one of the consequences of this is that more and more intellectuals from other traditions will contribute to that process, be involved with that process, be engaged with that process, to the extent that China can continue to perform economically and as a geopolitical power. Mm. Uh, should China stumble, then the scenario may be very different. On the same kind of track there, could Western countries benefit from a better understanding of Chinese philosophy then? If Chinese philosophy has such an important yeah. influence on China's politics and their society, and other countries are trying to deal with China and work with China and work in China, could they do with a better understanding of Chinese philosophy as a result? I think so, but perhaps not for those Those pragmatic ends. Mm. I think here we have a system of philosophical traditions, very sophisticated, going back two, 3,000 years in some cases. We also have Buddhist philosophy coming in from India 2,000 years ago, merging with elements, streams, uh, substreams of Chinese philosophy and creating really interesting hybrid philosophical systems. So here we have systems of philosophy being developed without direct contact or engagement with the mainstream of philosophical development in the West. So the sets of assumptions, the basic assumptions that these systems begin with are totally different. And so you have very, very different worldviews. So to be able to step into worldviews that have been formed over the course of several thousand years in sophisticated literate traditions with records for you to be able to trace the development of these traditions provides a framework, a perspective on which to view those other traditions that you may be more directly an inheritor of. So if I say I'm an inheritor of the Western tradition of uh, philosophical thought, to be able to take a different perspective on that tradition, I think is an enriching process. Mm. And you, uh, apologies for using this term though, but you being a Westerner, uh, have been able to go into Chinese philosophy with a, maybe a different grounding and see things that you wouldn't normally see if you grew up in China and studied this philosophy from that end. Well, I've done this. I think one of the main ones that I have reflected upon that I would recommend to my Chinese colleagues is to be much more self-aware of, of the role of Buddhist philosophy in their own philosophical legacy. I think it's been underplayed, it's been undervalued, and yet you only have to scratch the surface and it's Buddhism everywhere. If we take the Confucian tradition as a philosophical tradition or set of traditions, let's say go back to about 1200, there was a revival of Confucianism in the 11th century. You can go back to the 11th century, a revival of Confucianism called Neo-Confucianism. This was a big philosophical revival. And the systems of thought developed out of Neo-Confucianism had a major impact and influence on all of Chinese philosophy for the next 600 years. Mm. And in fact, we could say that 20th century Chinese philosophy comes out of that tradition as well. So the, the impact of that tradition is, is ongoing. And yet, if we look at the sophisticated elements of the metaphysics that underpins uh, neo-Confucian philosophy, and I, I draw attention particularly to metaphysics, it thoroughly indebted to developments that happened in 
Chinese Buddhist philosophy in the immediately preceding 500 years. So you wouldn't have had the sort of sophisticated philosophical developments that you get in Neo-Confucianism if it wasn't for the developments that had already happened in Chinese Buddhist philosophical circles for the 500 years before that. Mm. And it's these hybrid formations, these elements that are drawn from Confucian traditions and elements drawn from Buddhist traditions that have continued to be the most productive elements in philosophical creativity and continue to do so today. Yeah. But too often, it's packaged as Confucian philosophy. In fact, it's a hybrid of Confucian and Buddhist elements. Thank you for your time today, John. Okay, good. Thank you. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe Asia. If you'd like to hear other episodes of this podcast, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your local friendly neighbourhood podcasting service. You can follow La Trobe Asia on Twitter. We are at La Trobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.